Um, and now the kids in high school are six to 12 and K to five are dismissed to the back um, as they get ready for that. Um, the last week or so, being back has been funny. I was, I never thought I'd imagine this, but, and I imagine lots of things. Um, but I never thought I'd imagine this, but this week I felt a little bit how Lazarus must have felt when he showed up at the market, you know? They're just like, oh, you're alive, you know? Um, so it's like, it's been funny when people see me, they're like, oh, you're here. I'm like, yes, full-bodied, you know? Um, but one of the things that's been a joy is that for the last couple of years, we've been able to expand how we kind of um, not only worship together, but one of the things we've been able to do is to have online capabilities. So I was able to, even though I was away, I was able to watch the services. And, and so last week's sermon was interesting because I started in the airport and then, you know, we had to fly here, you know, so I didn't finish it till later in the week. And what was interesting is I one of my good friends, Jason, reminds me about betrayal, right? And the thing about betrayal is like, it can really only come from your own people. So I was a astounded and flabbergasted when I started watching the got to the sermon last week and my beloved sister Pastor Linda just firmly threw me under the bus you know like like I know it was quarantine not every one of us gets to quarantine in a hotel with room service right but it was a it was a struggle my people it was a struggle and, and I survived you know and I'm happy I survived you know but I just felt like she threw me firmly under the bus but it's okay I still love you Linda all right now that I got that out of my system we're going to get back to parables of Jesus, all right? So this week, we're going to be wrapping up for now, right, these parables of Jesus. Again, we've been looking at these as everyday stories, right, stories that Jesus taught to kind of teach something about the kingdom. And one of the beautiful things about these parables is that Jesus not only knew how people thought, right, but he knew how they thought about God, about themselves, about life and the world. So he would then use these parables to transform that. And he would do it by simply starting with what they understood, and then he would just build on it and build on it and build on it. Warren Wearsby has a great book on parables reminds us that that parables serve as both a, a mirror and, and a window. With a mirror, he says, when we look into these parables, one of the questions we need to ask is, who am I in this parable? Do I see myself here? And he says, as the parable then is transformed and the Holy Spirit enlightens us and teaches us through the parable, it then serves as a window because we go from looking for ourselves to seeing the world around us and seeing God and life and how God wants us to interact in this, in this parable. Now, our parable this morning we're going to end with is a parable of the two deaths. It's a parable about hospitality, it's about sin and, and, and judgment and forgiveness and love. And I have to confess, when I first started studying this parable, it's a story about this lady with the alabaster box. So I thought that this was going to be a parable about value, right? I thought the question and the teaching in this parable would be, what do we value the most and are we willing to give it to God, right? Like, what do we value the most? And, and so I started thinking about my list of possessions, and it was a quick list. You know, it wasn't that long, right? Like, I started thinking about my list of most valuable possessions, it was a quick list. But as I, as I studied the parable more and more, I realized that it's not necessarily about what we value because the answer is going to be the most important asset we have is ourselves. And that's what God wants. God redeems us and saves us, and God then buys us back so that he wants all of us, right? But that's not where I think God and Jesus is going in this parable. Instead, I think this parable is what should God's forgiveness inspire in us? I think that's the essence of this parable. What's valuable to Jesus, not necessarily what's valuable to us. I think this parable is Jesus basically saying, you are forgiven. So now what? You've been set free. So now what? I have forgiven you. But what does that mean? 
If you have your Bibles, please turn me to Luke chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 36 to 50. We'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Starting at verse 36, Luke writes, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, as she stood, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he should know, or he would know, who is touching him. And, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Sion, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and, and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I enter has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, <coughs> your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father, God, we thank you so much that you're indeed the God who heals, the God who forgives, the God who loves. Holy Spirit, we pray that you may convict us of our sin. We pray that you may draw us back to you. And we pray that like this woman, we can come before the Father humbly, even hysterical with our love and outpouring of emotion as we humbly bow down and ask for forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you that you are indeed the one who forgives. Father, we thank you that because of your great love and mercy and compassion, that if we're faithful to confess our sins to you, Lord, you not only forgive them, but you separate them as far as the east is from the west. You take them and you throw them to the depths of the deepest ocean. So Lord, we thank you for the power of forgiveness that breaks every chain and that sets us free. But Lord, we also thank you that your forgiveness should inspire us to worship. So we pray that we're not just humbly to ask for forgiveness, that we're not just broken before you, that we don't just accept the forgiveness and go in peace, but that we're reminded that because we've been forgiven, we ought to give our lives to you. Because you've paid it all, we ought to give it all for you and for your glory. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us grace and compassion. But Lord, Thank you that you've redeemed us. And we pray now that we may give our lives as worship to you. In your holy and precious name, amen. Well, an interesting thing that Luke does in chapter 7 is to kind of parallel Jesus, faith, and healing. And he tells it in three different stories. As he's going through the whole chapter 7, he starts off with, with a centurion servant. And that's the first story he tells. And what's interesting about this is that Luke is talking about an occupier. If you want to bring this to, to 2022, this is the equivalent of saying, I'm going to tell you the faith of a great Russian, a Russian military guy to a bunch of Ukrainians, right? Or it would be to go to Eritrea 
Eritrea be like, I'm going to tell you the faith of a great Ethiopian to a group of Eritreans. The Romans were conquerors. They were oppressors. They were in their land. And Jesus is going to tell a story about this great faith because this Roman centurion was a, was, a, was a military man, yes, but he was also someone who commanded a great deal of respect. So in this story, the centurion has a servant who's sick. And this is important because you see that this Roman centurion is a little bit different because back then servants were a dime a dozen, right? If you're sick and you don't do the job, I will fire you and go get someone else who can do the job, right? But this centurion is moved with compassion. So the first thing he does is he got a group of respected elders to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, my servant is sick. I need you to heal him. I know you have power to do that. And then as Jesus is turning towards the house, he sends a group of trusted friends and he says, Jesus, I know you're all powerful. I know like me who you tell people to do stuff and they do it. I, I like the centurion because I tell people to do stuff. They don't do it. So I admire people like that, right? But he says, Jesus, I know you tell people to do stuff and they do it. So you don't even have to come to my house. I'm a Roman. I'm an outsider. But if you just speak the words, I know, I know this servant will be saved. And to these Jewish people who are pleading for the servant on behalf of the centurion, they knew that he loved them. They knew that even though he was a Roman and an occupier, that he had built a synagogue for them, that he had loved and cared for them. So the first story that, that Luke tells about Jesus' faith and healing, we see our Jesus going across racial lines. We see our Jesus going across enemy war lines. We see our Jesus going across power and privilege and oppression lines to say that when you have faith, I see it. And imagine Jesus saying to a group of Jews, there is not greater faith in all of Israel than in the faith of the Roman who you only see as an oppressor. And then Luke moves on to a second story. And in this story, the faith that happens isn't just the faith of the centurion, but really is the faith of Jesus. Because you see what happens here is that this widow is on the way to burying her son. And we've covered this before. We said in that culture, in a patriarchal society, the only protection a woman had was her dowry. The only protection she had, that was, her, that was her insurance plan, her life insurance, and everything. Because in that culture, she would be dependent on her father and then her brothers and then if she had sons. So if she's a widow, we know that her husband has died, the dowry's been spent, and so all of her socioeconomic standing and status would be based on her children. And in this passage in Luke 7, we find out that her son, her only son, has died. So we're interacting with a mother here who's not just grieving the loss of her child, not just grieving the loss of her only child, but she also has to grieve the fact that she's now switched classes. The fact that whatever level of socioeconomic she was on, she's now going under. That whatever hope she had for future or retirement is gone. She's grieving the loss of her son, yes, but also the loss of a future. And when Jesus sees this, he's moved with compassion. I love this about our Jesus because we tend to think that, well, Jesus is God and God is just automatic. He loves everybody, right? Like, that's just what he does, right? But when you see in this story, Jesus looks at her and he's moved with compassion. And it shouldn't be lost on us that Jesus himself was an eldest son. That Jesus himself knew that he would die and have to go to heaven to get heaven ready for us. That Jesus himself knew that his mother would have to be dependent on others. So I think when he's moved to compassion, he understands her situation. 
And so now we see Jesus who's gone across racial lines, across power and privilege lines, across oppression lines. We see him going across socioeconomic lines. And he's so moved that he goes up to the funeral pyre. He scoots aside the pallbearers. He touches the buyer. And in that culture, we see Jesus now beginning to go across religious lines because to touch a dead person is to be unclean. Yet Jesus knew that this woman not only needed her son, but he needed to heal this boy. So he raises up the son. He says, man, get up. And the people are amazed. They go from this guy being a, a, a wonderful teacher to like, who is this that does this? So Jesus, in raising that, we've seen him in Luke 7 now, racial lines, socioeconomic lines, religious lines, and he continues that. But he continues, he continues that through the teaching of John the Baptist. Because you see, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. We've covered this before, right? John the Baptist knew that my job is to clear the way for Jesus. But there's a funny thing about following Jesus is that sometimes we can follow Jesus and think the wrong things about Jesus. Sometimes we can follow Jesus and miss the whole point. Now, you have to excuse John. John, we believe at the time, is in prison, rotting away, probably on his way to death. And John's understanding was, I prepare the way, the Messiah comes, the kingdom is established. So John was just like, um, Jesus, I'm about to die. What are you doing? Like, the kingdom is not established yet. Like, we need to get going here because I'm about to die. So he sends his disciples out to Jesus, and they're like, hey, John wants to know, like, what are you doing? Are you the Messiah? And I love that Jesus says, okay, I want you to just report what you've seen. You're worried about the kingdom being established, but tell John what you've seen. And what have you seen? But blind people being able to talk. But dead people being able to be raised again. What have you seen? But Jesus and God's spirit coming upon people and redeeming people and changing lives. And I love that because that to me is the core essence of what we're called to do as Christians. When Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples, what does he say? Baptize them what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then do what? Do everything that I have taught you. How do we make disciples? We do what Jesus has taught us. What you've been through, what God has led you through, what you've learned about God, it is your job, your duty, your responsibility to teach that to others. That's what Jesus calls you to do. So Jesus looks at these disciples of John and says, everything you've seen, go and report that. You want people to know about Jesus and the kingdom, tell them what God has done for you. And it's humbling, but hopefully it's freeing because there's not some, you know, formula that you put together and you say it the right way and then people are saved. Jesus seems to believe if you just tell your story, if you just tell what God has done in you and through you, if you just tell of the transformation that God has seen in your life, that you've seen with your own eyes in your life and the people around you, God seems to believe that's enough for people to come to him. But you have to do your part and go and report so after the disciples go back to John, Jesus then turns to the crowd. And he says, you know what's interesting to me? Is that when John came, you just thought he was a weirdo, right? You just thought he dressed funny. You know, we call him the baptizer because that's the only time water touched his skin when he was in the water baptizing people. Like you just thought he was this quirky ascetic, right? And you just thought that's what it was all about. But you miss the mark. He came to prepare the way for me. And Jesus affirms John's ministry in Luke 7 by saying, he came as the one God chose to prepare the way for me. And Jesus says, the crazy thing is that, the wild thing is that John was, you know, a weirdo for that. Now, I'm the opposite of John. I'm the life of the party. 
I love people. I love connecting with everybody. I'm the friend of everybody. And you only see me as a glutton and a drunkard. You miss the mark. Again, because I have come so that all might be saved. I have come so that all might be reached. I have come. You know, Paul says this, right? Like, to, to, to the Greek, I was a Greek. To the Scythian, I was a Scythian, right? Like, Jesus is the model for all that. Jesus says, I will meet you where you're at. Just like his parables was his life. I will meet you where you're at to bring you to where God desires you to be. But yet, you all miss it. But in this sermon, in this chapter 7, the people actually get it. And they're like, we get it now, you know? Maybe he is indeed the Messiah. Everyone seems to get it except the Pharisees. In Luke 7, the Pharisees were just like, no, we don't buy this. Like, we don't like that these people are starting to believe in this guy. We don't even like it. And later on in the Gospels, we find out that the Pharisees are, are people who then scheme to, to, to literally kill Jesus. That throughout his ministry, they're the ones who step up to challenge him and to, to even call him out and say, not only are you not a Messiah, but you're not the prophet, as we'll see later on in this same passage. But I find it interesting that we're quick to say how divided our word is, that we're quick to say how ostracized and, and separated and, and, and everyone's just contentious. But yet Jesus, in this passage, goes to the home of people who desired to kill him, goes to the home of people who said he wasn't worthy to be even a prophet, much less the Messiah, goes to the home of people who wanted nothing to do to him but to expose him. How much more do we ought to go to these places of division and bring peace? How much more do we ought to step in and bridge the gap? How much more? Because here's the thing. If the world is divided, God seems to think the spirit is working. Why aren't you? If the world is ostracized and everyone's fighting, God seems to think that you're the answer to that prayer. And if Jesus is willing to go to the home of a Pharisee, to go to the home of someone whose only desire is to expose him and to say he's not legit, if Jesus is willing to bridge the gap with him, how much more can you write a little comment instead of writing a comment on Facebook to actually go to dinner or lunch with somebody and say, let's talk? And that's the Jesus we follow. And that's where this story begins. Jesus is in the home of someone who wants nothing to do with him but expose him as being fugazi, as being fake, as being not the Messiah, not the prophet, yet Jesus dines with him. So we happen to have, because when we walk into this scene, Jesus is at dinner. Now I have to say that their dinners are a little bit different than our dinners, right? When you invite me over to dinner, which you should, you should have lots of food, right? And maybe you'll be gracious enough to extend the invitation to my family. That'd be nice of you. You should do that, right? But usually when you invite people to dinner, that's it, right? You invite the people, they come to eat together, right? That's not how it was back then. We've talked about how hospitality was, was not just a, a value of the culture, but it was actually like a standard of morality. So like if I showed up at your house at 3 a.m. and you didn't have food, you're a bad person, right? And I used to think that was harsh, but I kind of think that's true. Like if I show up at your house at 3 a.m., you should feed me, right? Like I feel like that's a good policy to keep going. But for them, it wasn't just, oh, we need to be hospitable because that's nice. We need to be hospitable because it's our spiritual gift. To them, it was like a, a, a harbinger of whether or not you're a good person. And I want you to hold on to that because hospitality pays a little bit in this story as well. But their hospitality stretches. And what I mean by that is like when you have a dinner, you might have invited guests, but you also were supposed to keep the house open and anybody can show up. So imagine the stress that puts on the cook, right? Because you have a guest and you say, how many people are you having? Oh, just a little group, eight to ten. 
but the kitchen's open. And anyone who shows up can show up. And not only can they be invited to join the meal, but they can say and speak and just listen maybe if we're having a great conversation. But these dinners were public. So Jesus is not only in an enemy's home necessarily or enemy ground, but he's in a setting where anybody can walk in with a Pharisee who denies him and desires to expose him. And the other principal character is this woman who shows up. We know she's a local woman. We know, and she's characterized by Luke, by, by the Pharisee even in the story, as, as a sinful woman. And that's fascinating to me because we don't know what her sin is, right? We just speculate as to what the sin is. And I think a lot of the focus is either on the alabaster box and how much it costs, or the fact that she's a sinful woman. And I think both of those miss what Jesus is showing. And what Jesus is showing is that when God forgives you, you should be moved to worship. You should be moved to worship. So what happens in this story is that this woman who maybe had another interaction with Jesus comes before him humbly. In that culture, they didn't just sit at the table and eat. They would recline. And she's so humble that when she sees Jesus, when she sees her Messiah, she's overwhelmed. She's almost hysterical with emotion. She can't walk up to his face. She hides behind him, and she starts weeping, weeping so much that it's falling on his face and falling on his feet, and she doesn't know what to do with it, so she starts wiping it with her hair and doesn't know what to do, so she starts kissing his feet. And the reaction to her brokenness, the reaction to her humility the reaction to this woman anointing him with perfume is that, oh, she must be a harlot or a whore. And the church has held on to that for a long time. A lot of Catholic theologians think this is Mary Magdalene and this is how she came into the kingdom. A lot of people say, well, because she had a sinful life and, and how dare her expose her hair, that's a sign that she's a harlot and a prostitute and a whore. And we miss the point that Jesus isn't defining her. Luke doesn't even define what the sin is, first of all. But furthermore, Jesus isn't defining her by who the world says she is, by what she's done wrong, by how she's fallen short. He defines her by her willingness to worship him. So she weeps. She, she wipes his feet. She anoints him with perfume. And then the other interesting thing about this story is that it shows up in Matthew and Mark. But I actually think there's two different women. Because in Matthew and Mark, we know that Jesus is in Bethany. We know this is the, the, the week before the cross. We know that anointing is to prepare him for the cross. We even know who's there. Like Lazarus, who's like, hey, I'm back again, right? Like Lazarus is there, and, and Martha and, and, and her sister, they're like, they're all there. Mary and Martha. And we know that Simon the leper is the one who hosts that, right? And you're like, well, it's the same name, Simon. Well, Simon was a very, very popular name, right? Jesus even had two disciples named Simon, right? One was Simon called Peter, and one was Simon called the Zealot that we don't talk about. And, and in the first service, someone actually tagged me in a comment. They said, their son said, when Pastor Hank says, we don't talk about Simon the Zealot, he started saying, we don't talk about Bruno, but he made it the Zealot. And I said, these kids are brilliant. If you haven't watched Encanto, you should. You'll get the joke two hours later. Simon isn't the leper here, isn't who we're talking about, because Jesus has been in Capernaum, he's been in Nain, and now he's in the house of this Pharisee. And when he gets to this house of this Pharisee, what's fascinating to me in this story, again, isn't the value of the alabaster box. It isn't the value of, of her, the life that she lived. It's not the sin that she's committed. It's the fact that because she's been forgiven, she's moved to worship Jesus. 
She's moved to give Jesus all that she is. Because she's forgiven and because of her worship, Jesus sees her, frees her, and sends her forward in peace. And what's fascinating to me also is that while this scene is happening, while she's being broken, while she's humbly coming before Jesus in worship and saying, Lord, thank you for giving me. I'm giving you all that I am. I just want to worship you. Simon's reaction is, hmm, how can you be a prophet even if you're letting this sinner touch you? If you're letting this lady who's a harlot and a prostitute and a lady of the night, we all know what she does, which always makes me wonder, how do we all know? Right? That's the like, next level thing. Like, how do we all know that she does these things? Like, you, again, you'll figure out later. But he's thinking all of that to himself. But you know, there's a few privileges that comes with being the God of the universe, right? You get to know what people are thinking. So Simon is sitting there judging this lady. Not broken, not seeing her broken and coming and worshiping Jesus and, and, and saying, God, I thank you for loving me and forgiving me and setting me free. And I just don't know what to do. I just want to worship you and give you all of me, right? And he says and thinks to her, like, she's a sinner, and you're letting her touch you. Jesus hears that, and he instructs by teaching a story. And he goes to this parable, and in the parable he says, Simon, I want to tell you a story about two people who owed a little bit of money, right? Two people owed a money lender. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. And our, like, using our minimum wage and all that stuff, it basically boils down to the 500 denarii is about $32,000, right? Not small change. And so then the 50 would be $3,200. Again, not small change. And Jesus says, neither of them can afford to pay it, right? And so they come before the money lender, and he forgives both of them. Both of them, he just says, it's forgiven. And I keep saying that, like, I think our generation, at least, we're getting a new appreciation of debt, right? It used to be debt would be like a mortgage, right? But now with student loan debt, a lot of us are like, ooh, we like this idea of being set free. Like, imagine whatever your student loan debt is. You come to someone, and, and Fannie Mae is like, you have been set free, my child. Imagine the joy you will feel, right? Like, imagine the relief, right? Or some of us who are paying mortgages, it's like, your mortgage has been set free. Your debts have been canceled, right? Like, that's the kind of freedom we're talking about here. And Jesus says, but who do you think would be more like grateful? And so, so the Aramaic doesn't have this word for grateful, so it translates as, who do you think will love him more, right? But the idea Jesus is trying to convey is, who's going to be more grateful? And that's why Simon's like, well, obviously the one who owes 32000 <laughs> Like, they both can't pay it, but 32000 is 10 times the money. And Jesus says, you've responded well. And I love that Jesus then teaches Simon by turning to the woman. So we start off with a woman who's too embarrassed to actually come to the face of Jesus. We start off with a woman who thinks her sin is so great that she can't come to the face of Jesus. And she's just so hysterical, she can't control herself. And she's trying to sink her away in the back and at his feet. And I love that the God of the universe turns his attention not to the Pharisee, not to the crowd, not to the people all around them, but to the woman who's at his feet. And he's looking at her while teaching him. And I love that. I love that about our Jesus because he upholds not only her worship, but her dignity as a person. He makes her the most important person in that scene. Not Simon the Pharisee. Like, it's almost like, Simon, you're going to get this teaching whether or not you want to. You're going to get this teaching. But I have to attend to my daughter. And he looks down upon her, and he uplifts her, and he uplifts her worship, and he reminds Simon of something. You're worried about whether or not I'm a prophet. You're worried about whether or not I'm even worthy of being a prophet. And you're worried about what you think her reputation is and your perception of it. But you miss the point that I've forgiven her, that I've set her free, that she's now a new creation, creation, a new creature. 
And Simon, here's the thing. You're worried about her outward sin. What about your sins? I'm in your house. You didn't offer anyone to wash my feet, yet her tears have washed my feet. You didn't greet me warmly with a kiss, yet she's bold enough to kiss my feet. You did not even offer her, offer me anything of hospitality, yet she takes her hair to wipe my feet. She's humble, she's heartbroken, she's anointing me. Simon, you have fallen short. And that's why, Simon, she's forgiven. And because she's forgiven so much, she's been set free. She loves me a lot, Simon, because she knows she's been forgiven a lot. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. We want to define this woman by her quote-unquote sinful life. We want to define her by her alabaster box. Jesus defines her by her worship. Because God has forgiven us, we ought to be moved to worship. And I love that as kingdom people, our forgiveness by God must move us to worship. Because one thing we learn in this story is that all of our judgments will always fall short. If we're just looking at people the way the world sees them, we will fall short. If we're looking at people by the worst thing they've done, we will fall short. If we're defining people by their sin, we will fall short. If we're defining people by us being better than them, we will fall short. And for remembering that our God forgives, that our God loves, that our God has mercy and compassion, that our God sets free, that we need God too, we can be moved to worship. But I also love that love is not the cause of God's forgiveness. It's the fruit. See, there's a difference there. Because if we think God just forgives, because that's what God does, right? Like, that's what, this is God, that's what God does. But Jesus seems to say, what? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. To the centurion, he says, I have not seen so great a faith in Israel. To the woman with the son, he says, I will restore your faith by giving you a future. I don't agree with much that John Calvin says, but I think he gets it right this one time on this. He says, by faith, therefore, we obtain forgiveness. By love, we give thanks and bear testimony to the loving kindness, the mercy, the compassion, the grace of God. God's love is great and afford to all of us, but it's our faith. That's why the scripture says, if we are faithful and if we are humble enough to confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and all of our unrighteousness. The idea here is that we have to be bold enough to come before God and confess because faith is the doorway to God's forgiveness. God's mercy is free. His grace is going to set us free. And the Greek talk about this word called ephesus, right? And ephesus in the Greek means both to cancel the debt and to release you. And so that's what Jesus does here. But it's faith that's the doorway to forgiveness. You have to be bold enough to come before God and say, God, I have fallen short. God, I don't deserve it. God, I'm sorry. God, I've left good left undone. God, I've completely have given life for myself and not you. We have to be bold enough to come before God. But I think the core thing of this entire story that I want you to hold on to this morning is this. God's forgiveness should move you to worship. God's forgiveness should move you to worship.
The idea of forgiveness is redeemed, it's buying back, it's setting free. But for most of us, we love our God of grace, and we think that God's forgiveness is so we can feel good and be free. And that's part of it. God doesn't want you to be in chains. God doesn't want you to be having sin that so easily ensnare you. But God has forgiven you, and now God desires you to worship him. And that's with all of your being. That's with everything that you have. And that's where we can bring back the alabaster box. And that's where we can bring back the, the crying tears. And that's where we can bring back the humility and the heartbreak of this woman. But I love that her story and this story does not end with her heartbreak. It does not end with her brokenness. It ends with her Savior setting her free. And that's what God's forgiveness does. So the question to us becomes, what should God's forgiveness inspire in us? It should be worship. And what does worship look like? Not just what we do on Sunday morning. Not just what we do in our one-on-one -on -one time with the Lord. Not just what we do in community with one another. In everything that we do. We're going to end by singing a familiar old hymn, Jesus Paid It All. And as we sing this song, I want to invite the worship team up as we prepare to sing this song. But I want to give you a chance to do two things this morning. You can stand and sing and do this in your heart. But I think all of us need to use this as an opportunity to get right with God. If there's sin in your life that you haven't confessed, now's the time of salvation, the scripture says. If there's something in your life that, that you need to be freed of, now's the time to say, God, I need you to set me free. Now's the time to humbly come before the Lord and know that, yes, that sin might break your heart as it breaks God's heart, but your story doesn't end in brokenness. It ends in healing. It ends in chains falling off, but it ends on you being set free. But because you've been set free, God expects you to worship him. And the only way we worship God is by giving him back all of us. He's paid it all. Now he requires you to give it all back to him. Let's stand and sing together. We'll be up here to pray for you for anything you've got going on. We'd love to pray for you. Please come up. Let's stand and sing together.
idea that because Jesus has paid it all, we ought to give it all was inspired in me this week. I was meeting with a, a young couple who's getting ready for marriage, and we're doing premarital counseling, and we're talking, and we were talking about, you know, what, what, what kind of values do you want to pass on? Like, not just to your kids, but to your community, to people around you. These are the questions we do in premarital. You should come if you think about getting married, right? But I love their answer. One of the things they said is that we want our house to not just be a safe place, but we want that space that we have, that we cultivate, to be a place where people can come and know that they're safe, that they're loved, that they're blessed. Not only that we love them, but that God loves them too. And that's a picture of giving it all of doing a, a kind of a, a write down or, or I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, but kind of doing like an inventory of all that we have, right? All of our skills, our gifts, our abilities, our house, our cars, everything that we have, right? Because it doesn't belong to us. God's only letting us oversee and steward it. And it, it's saying, God, now that you've purchased all of me, I want to give all of me back to you. Everything you've given me, how can I use it for your glory? And that's the work. That's what it means to give it all back to Jesus. Everything that he's given you, how are you purposing that for his glory and for his kingdom? Our Father, our God, we thank you so much that you are indeed the God who forgives, that you're the God who heals, that you're the God who sets free. So, Lord, we pray this morning that if there's sin in our life, Lord, we come before you boldly to confess it, to ask for forgiveness. Lord, break our hearts for falling short. Break our hearts for sinning against you. Break our hearts for hurting one another. 
But Lord, we thank you that our story is not defined by our brokenness because if we're faithful to confess our sins, you're faithful to forgive our sins. So help us to know the power of chains falling off. Help us to know the power of that sin being thrown into the depths of the ocean. Help us to know the power of that sin being separated as far as the east is from the west. And now, Lord, that we're set free, now that we've been purchased, now that our debts have been canceled, Lord, release us, empower us to go and love because those who've been forgiven a lot ought to love a lot. So, Lord, let love be the fruit of our forgiveness. Let our lives be lives that's a testimony of our worship to you. So, Lord, this morning we offer all that we are, all that we have, all that we dream, all that we hope for, we lay it at your feet. And we say, Lord, take it and use us for the glory of your kingdom. Help us to be not just safe places. Help us to be not just places where people know they're loved by us, but places and people who point others to you. Lord, take everything you've taught us, every journey you've sent us on, and help us to tell that story. Lord, take everything that we have that belongs to us and remind us that it belongs to you. Let it be used for your kingdom come. Let it be used for your will to be done. Lord Jesus, thank you for paying it all. Holy Spirit, thank you for not only convicting us of sin, but pointing us back to God. Father God, thank you for not only forgiving us of sin, but setting us free. And Lord Jesus, thank you for not only loving us, but empowering us to love one another. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.